Well, good morning. We are at the end of our series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, man, after working on this chapter this week, I wanted to do a new series just in chapter 13. <laughs> Can we do Nehemiah part two, only one chapter, five weeks long? Like, um, because it's the culmination, really, of, of everything Nehemiah has been doing. It's the culmination of where we find ourselves. It's kind of where I find myself often as a leader, like Nehemiah does at the end of the book. It was just one of those moments as I studied and read it over the last, actually, several weeks, because um, Mark gave me a week off there, so I got more time. It just kind of impacted me, and I was like, man, there's a lot here. I mean, I actually struggled with like four different titles <laughs> and changed them, and I actually changed my slides three times with different titles, because I just, what's here is just one of those things, and you'll see as we work through it, that's really powerful. Before we get to that, there's uh, just the church-wide event. Before we get to that, remember, we're in this series called Trouble and Disgrace. Okay, we're in the series called Trouble and Disgrace. And, you know, as I thought this morning about this, and as I thought about singing Did the Mountains Tremble, I was talking to our greeters, our guys outside that were greeting you as you came in, and I was talking about, like, dancers who dance upon injustice, and before the service, I was in here dancing. You don't want to see that, by the way, but... Um, but I was, doing, I was doing the trouble and disgrace dance. You know, the, the trouble and disgrace dance is like when injustice has happened to you, right, and, and you've got to dance about it. If you don't know what that dance is, you just need to be around some two or three-year-olds for a little while, and you'll see the dance, right? It's the, they just do that when they get really mad that you won't give them your way. And then Brian, our youth pastor, also said, yeah, and then you lay down and throw yourself on the ground. So... If we do that song at the end of service, um, I would expect, those of you online won't see it, but I would expect all of you to be jumping up and down like that, doing like a tantrum. And if you want to lay down and flop, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll let that go. But, but literally, those are the kinds of things, to let you into my world, that go through my mind on a Sunday morning. That as I'm getting ready to come up before you, as I'm thinking about the week, I'm thinking about what's going on in my personal life, what's going on in the world, there's just this sense of me going to God and seeing the reality things, seeing the trouble, seeing the disgrace, seeing the hope that as people come in, I'm, I'm hopeful and we see people. I mean, it's just one of those things that, that impacts you. And I hope, I mean, it impacts me. I hope that it impacts you. And there's hope in the midst of our trouble and disgrace. Remember, this has been the history that we're looking at. In 586, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple they do that because the prophets warned them if they didn't follow God, that God was going to allow discipline to happen in their life, and it was swift and severe. God was patient for many, like, hundreds of years with them, and they chose not to listen to him. They chose to, we've got better ways, we can do it our way, we can make peace our way. And so Jerusalem and the temple are completely destroyed. Then Cyrus of Persia comes in and conquers Babylon. Why? Because God told the king of Babylon, if you don't treat my people well, I'm using you right now as an instrument. But if you don't treat them well, I'm going to get rid of you. And that's what happens. Cyrus of Persia comes in and kills the, destroys Babylon, and then Persia rises up. Now Cyrus treats God's people decent. He makes a decree to begin, or begin construction of the temple, and they continue to, they do that for a while, then the people get tired, it's kind of hard work, and then they, there's like a revival that happens, and they start building again, and they get the temple completed, and then Artaxerxes I comes to power, and he makes a decree for Ezra to return to worship, and there's another revival, and then in 445, he makes a decree that Nehemiah can return and rebuild the wall, because you see, they have a worship, but they don't have any protection, and the nations around them are fighting with them, and the people aren't safe. And that's where we find the book of Nehemiah. The wall's been completed. We're coming to the end of the book. And all that's happened, the wall was done in 52 days. And we've looked at that. In Nehemiah 1, we looked at the fact that Nehemiah mourned for the brokenness of Jerusalem. And he was strengthened by God to do the work that God had asked him to do which was to ask the king, risk his life asking the king to go back and help his people. And sometimes that's us, right? It's going to cost us to have to serve and love God's people. It will cost you, I promise. Much easier not, not to serve and love God's people, right? Especially because most of us are a real pain in the rear, to be honest, just like God's people are in the Bible, right? We, we don't do what God says, and God steps up, and he asks us to serve and love. It means we mourn and 
Nehemiah was strengthened. He's allowed to go and build. And as soon as he gets there, he's careful with what God has laid on his heart with the people. He tells them, he says, hey, look, God laid this on my heart, but what's great about it is Nehemiah tells them, he's like, I didn't tell anybody about it. I let God do his work. I prayed, I observed, I waited, and then I moved. And so often we're the opposite. We run, we, we cry, and we feel the strength of God, and then we just run headlong into a mess instead of pausing and asking, did God lay this on my heart, or am I just making stuff up? And Nehemiah does that, and then he goes from there, and he starts being attacked. Yes, God laid this on your heart. Now he's got enemies that are keeping him from building. They're threatening that if you don't do what we tell you, you're not going to be able to build what God wants you to build. And we have that in our world today. Churches being threatened. Churches in Canada right now that are being fined, that, that their doors are being closed off, fences are being put up, and military personnel are outside the doors of the church so that people can't gather in Canada. Today. Happening. And he says, you know what? Don't be afraid. Remember who God is and respond to God the way he asks you to respond, which means sometimes risking your life. Not risking your life for a building, because if you remember, he says to fight for your countrymen. It's about people, not a place. At this time, God, the place and the people are connected, but we know through the New Testament that the new place has become the human heart. And where two or more are gathered together in his name under his authority, that's the church gathered. Then we go on and it said that they built the wall in 52 days. It was a miracle. <laughs> 52 days they completed the entire wall that was in rubbles. I mean, people were amazed. The people around them were amazed. There was a party that broke out and they said and they gave credit to the fact that they there's no way we could if God wouldn't have accomplished it. And so they didn't give credit to themselves. They didn't say, look at what we build. We got to build. They said, look at what God has done. And then we find them celebrating, weeping as they hear the word of the law. And, and they were, had joy seeing that God was their stronghold. And there was a revival that broke out and they surrendered. And then Mark did a great job of talking about all that the people deserved. And nevertheless, God was extending them graciousness and mercifulness that they didn't deserve. And that's what he does for us. And that was their response, that they didn't deserve to have their city back. They didn't deserve to have a temple. They didn't deserve to have walls. They didn't deserve any of it. Yet God in his grace and mercy extended it to them because he wanted people to see who he was with his people. And then last week, we looked at the people recognizing that the mess that they were in they were still slaves. You got to remember, they have their temple and they have their walls back, but they're still slaves to Persia. Persia could come and take over the city again and cut off the gates and it would be over for them. See, following God didn't get them out of their circumstances. It allowed them to serve in their circumstances so that they could represent God to the world. And that's where we find ourselves today. And they said, here we are, and they admitted it was because of our sin that we're, here, that, that we're here, and they said, we'll make a covenant with our God that regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of the circumstances, we're making a covenant to follow him, not follow anything else. And we'll follow what he tells us to follow, and we'll surrender to him. And that's exactly what happens. Now this week, as we wrap up, Nehemiah comes to the end, and he says this phrase, or this similar phrase, three times in chapter three, which is why I've landed on this as the title. He says, remember me for this. Let me ask you. We're reading this book about Nehemiah that's old, <laughs> thousands of years old. What do you want to be remembered for? Remember me for this. Nehemiah says it three times in this chapter, which means he's struggling with the fact that he's afraid he's going to be forgotten, that what he's doing isn't worth it that it's just going to pass away, and I existed, and I died, and there's nothing really more to that. You just become worm food, and that's it. He's struggling with, was this worth it? Was it worth doing all this? And, and God, I'm still having to fight this, and will you remember me? Because obviously the people won't remember anything, because he's struggling with the people at this point in chapter 13. He's saying, God, will you remember me? You see, most of us want to be remembered for like great things we've done. We want to be remembered for 
for how nice we were, how big an impact we had, or how much we knew, and how many books we wrote, or how many problems we solved. That's, that's what we want to be remembered for, but can I just tell you, you will be forgotten in history for those things. You will be. You can't name the most powerful emperor that ever existed. You don't know. You, you can't even give me the history of some of the greatest empires. If I asked you and sat down with you and talked about the Roman history and all the great Roman Caesars that led their people, how many of them would you know by name and know their stories? And see, this is the miracle of God's word. The miracle of God's word is somehow, by some miracle, God has preserved his word and we know about these people. Nehemiah didn't know that at this time. Nehemiah didn't know at this time that he was going to be preserved in a book. He was just writing down the history, like, here it is, here's my life. He didn't know he was going to be remembered. He wasn't trying to be remembered for something. He's just like, I got to obey God. So let me ask you, what do you want to be remembered for? And when you find out what Nehemiah is asking to be remembered for in chapter 13, you'll be like, ooh, I don't want to be remembered for that. I don't want people to remember me like that. And Nehemiah is asking God to remember him for these things. You know, John the Baptist is another person that we talk about in Scripture that is remembered. John, Jesus said wherever his name was spoken, he'd be remembered. He talked about the fact that John the Baptist was one of the most righteous men to ever live. We know John this, but did you know that Herod... John the Baptist stood up for what was right. See, what Nehemiah is going to be remembered for, and we'll see this in a minute, is because he rebuked and he warned his people. He said, please remember me, God, for the rebuke and the warning that I gave to your people. Please remember me, because it's hard for me to do this. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to have to tell the truth. I don't want to have to stand up, and I'm going to be forgotten. These people don't want to hear it. They don't want to, and they've already forgotten because... Nehemiah leaves and comes back 12 years later. We'll see in a minute. And in 12 years, they forgot everything and they're back to a mess again. Just 12 years. That's three presidential cycles. <laughs> and Nehemiah is sitting here and he's looking and John the Baptist was killed. You know why John the Baptist was killed but yet still remembered? Because he stood up and warned Herod not to be in this illicit marriage he was going into. Right? Do you know that we pretty much have forgotten Herod? For the most part, some people remember King Herod and who he was. John the Baptist prophesied, he looked at Herod, he said, he rebuked him, he said, don't do this, just like Nehemiah is getting ready to tell the people, don't do this. And he was actually rebuking something that in our culture we don't like to talk about, marriage. He was looking at King Herod and saying, don't do marriage this way. Do not do this. Do not marry her. Do not be with her. John the Baptist gets beheaded. You want to know why? Because the woman he told Herod not to marry and told not to have a relationship got her daughter to dance, dance, maybe even naked, we don't know, in front of all of Herod's people. And they were so excited about it that Herod said, I'll give you anything for that dance you did. Not the dance of injustice, but the dance of permissiveness in front of people. He said, I'll give you whatever you want. And the mother, who Herod married, whispered in her daughter's ear, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And that's exactly what happened in history. They cut John the Baptist's head off and they brought it into the party on a platter to walk it around. Is that what you want to be remembered for? That's what John the Baptist is remembered for. But do you want to know how Herod died? There was an ABC story that came out just a few years ago. And they started to do some more research on how Herod died. John the Baptist died because he was beheaded. When they started to look at how Herod the died, remember, John the Baptist warned Herod. He said, there is trouble and disgrace coming for you if you do this. Do not do it. ABC, this is the quote. More than 2,000 years after Herod the Great succumbed to death at age 69, doctors have now settled on exactly what killed the king of ancient Judea. Chronic kidney disease complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitalia. See, they didn't have antibiotics to treat sexually transmitted diseases back then. If you got one, you got gangrene and maggots had died. I don't know about you, I'd rather be beheaded. 
Just saying. <laughs> we live in a broken world. Nehemiah lived in a broken world. He was a slave of Persia. He was trapped, but he's still faithful to God. John the Baptist lived in a broken world. John the Baptist, at the end of his life, struggled with, are you the Messiah? Am I going to be remembered? Was my life worth it? That's what we all struggle with. It's normal, but the process is to take us to the other side so that we remember that God remembers us. Nehemiah 13.1 says, at the time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they, had, when they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. So Nehemiah is telling the story of what's going on, that after he left and he went back to be a slave, he, got, he did his job, he got the walls completed, and Nehemiah willingly went back to slavery to be the king of Persia's cupbearer, to make sure the king of Persia didn't die from drinking poison. That was his job. Nehemiah goes back, and in the meantime, they start to fall apart, but the book of the law is brought out at some point in this 12-year period. The book of the law is brought out, and the command was found written in it this. I don't know about you. This would be a hard command, especially if you've allowed all the Moabites and Ammonites to come in and worship with you when God drew a boundary and said, don't cross this. This could be a hard thing too, because some of us might look at this teaching as a hard teaching. Some of us may look at this and think, well, God discriminates? Well, God has rules about relationships, You don't get to make them up. They're written in scripture. He draws the boundaries. The question is, will we submit to them or not? Will we do what God says, believing that it's best for us, or will we do what he, what we want to do because we believe it's best for us? Will we look at the scriptures and look at what he says, or will we go find what we want and create the peace and the relationships we want to have? That's still the same today as it was back then. Now, you have to remember, and you think, wow, So God's like a racist. He won't let Moabites and Ammonites. Wrong answer. Who was the Moabite that is in Jesus' line that Jesus, our Savior, was born of? Do you remember the Moabite? Ruth. Ruth didn't declare herself a Moabite. She gave up her (laughs) Moabiteness to become an Israelite. She said, I am no longer a Moabite. She looked at Naomi and she said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and I am separating myself from the corruption of that. Doesn't mean I don't love my people, that my former people, doesn't mean I don't want to see them, but I just know there is no hope for me to cling to this life. I have to die to this life and engage this one. And what they're saying in this is there are that are Moabites and Ammonites that have drawn lines and they have declared, this is my nationality, this is who I am, and nobody gets to tell me what to do with my nationality or whatever it is. Oh, by the way, King Herod was a Moabite who was allowed to build the temple for the people of God. See, his response to not knowing him to not knowing if he had salvation was to play the peace. If I build him a nice temple, then they'll like me and then I'll get special permission. And that's what we do. King Herod wouldn't, when John the Baptist confronted him, just confess his sins and repent and say, God is God and he is greater than Herod the Great. He's greater than me. He wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And so what Nehemiah does is he recognizes that what's going on is that the people of God have made compromises. Instead of Honoring God and what he said and the authority that he has, what they've done instead is they've decided to make little peace treaties and things to keep things at ease. Look at this. It goes on to say, now before this, in other words, before this law was read and this happened, that they begin to expel the people, before all that happened, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was a relative of Tobiah. Remember who Tobiah is? Tobiah was one of the guys that was persecuting, earlier in the book, Nehemiah's work of rebuilding the temple. Tobiah didn't want God's people to be, have walls and, and to be okay because he wanted to control them. He wanted to decide what could be done. 
And it said, they had prepared a large room for Tobiah where they had previously stored grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and the old prescribed... Uh, the oil prescribed for the Levite singers and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. They, they literally took a storeroom that was supposed to be for the holy things of God, right? They took this storeroom that was supposed to be for the holy things of God, and they moved those holy things out so that they could make peace with Tobiah so Tobiah wouldn't give them a hard time anymore. You talk about compromise, And literally, Tobiah comes in, he lays this out, he's got a place to stay in the temple. He's a Moabite, number one. Number two, he's not surrendered to God, he's fighting God's people. What are you doing? And this is the thing we will do all the time in relationships. We We will order relationships wrongly. Did God love Tobiah? Yes. He loved him enough that he wanted him to repent, which is why Nehemiah warned him earlier in the book, you need to repent. Stop fighting the things of God. But instead, after Nehemiah leaves, all the people are like, oh, we're we're not sure what to, so we're just going to just do what to, listen, it'd be one thing, and, and remember, Tobiah doesn't have any authority over them in this situation. This isn't like Tobiah is like a ruler and rules Jerusalem. That's not what's going on here. Tobiah's a guy that thinks he has authority in Jerusalem, but he really doesn't. Nehemiah ultimately does because he's right next to Artaxerxes I. But because of their fear, they make compromises. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. Nehemiah had been gone for 12 years and he starts to hear about what's happening in Jerusalem. That this covenant that they made and the party they had and this great rejoicing that they had, it's all disappeared and now the people are just doing whatever makes them feel good and whatever works and that's what they're doing. And he hears about it and so he's like, I have to return. He has to go where he's told, and he was told by God to go, and so he goes back. He says, I was greatly displeased, and I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. Can you picture this? Like, what? (laughs) He comes, and he's just chucking stuff. I mean, everybody else was okay with it. Everybody else thought it was fine. Everybody else, it's no problem. Everybody else, oh, this helps us have peace with Tobiah and his family, and he likes us now. He doesn't make fun of us anymore, and he doesn't attack us. And Nehemiah comes in, he's like, "Uh uh-uh, and he is chucking stuff out of this room. These would have been valuable possessions, right? And it says, I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with the grain offering and the frankincense. This isn't what God said to do in the Old Testament. You guys were just 12 years ago in revival, and now 12 years later, you're letting this happen? Tobiah wanted to kill you 12 years ago. 12 years ago, Tobiah said, I want to kill all of you if you keep rebuilding this wall. And now you're giving him a place in your temple? It goes on. So we look at this, and it says that He ordered that they be purified, that things be brought back to the way God intended them to be. Get caught thinking, man, Elisha, what a terrible guy. And we can judge all these people that were doing this. But you need to be careful. Because here's what Paul says. Romans 3 says this. What then, are we any better? Not all, not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Welcome to America. 
That's our world today. They're not righteous, and they're not righteous, and they're not righteous, and they're not righteous, and you need to do this, and curse them, and curse them, and curse them, and curse them, and it's like, hold on. Just like they could have said, well, I'm not a Moabite, I'm not an Ammonite. We're not talking about judging the Moabites and the Ammonites. You guys are getting judged for your sins, for what you're not doing. Listen, the Moabites and the Ammonites could have worshipped God. Bruce surrendered to God. They still had access to the outer courts of the temple to make sacrifices for God, believing that God would someday give them rights that they don't have yet. That's what the Old Testament talks about. And if you wanted to submit to God that way, he was more than welcome, welcoming to you, and he actually told the, his people that you are to treat the foreigner in your land with care. And compassion and love. Because standing was, if you're allowing them into the land, it means they've agreed to obey the rules of the land, which means they're worshiping me, which means you need to treat them well. That's the way the Old Testament worked. It goes on and it says, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, whenever we see cursing and bitterness, let's just be honest. We always think of cursing and bitterness, and we attach like a volume to it, right? The cursing and bitterness is like loud, and I'm coming after you. Do you realize that one of the most awful things, and you can see it happen in relationships, is when bitterness takes hold and people don't even talk to each other? That is a bitterness that kills you a thousand times over every day without a word ever being spoken. See, we always look at this and we think, oh, check your heart. Check your heart. I have to check my heart. It's easy to get bitter about things. That doesn't mean, well, I'm bitter, so let's give Tobiah a room in my house. No. Tobiah needs to repent. But you need to check your own heart. And Paul is saying, to these people, these Romans, he, he just spent two chapters telling the Romans how all the world's cursed, telling the Roman church. He's saying, look at all this. Look at what's happening. And then he gets to verse 3, talking to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he says, hey, look, before you judge them, check your own heart. He goes on and says this, to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. See, they, they let Tobiah in because they thought that would bring peace. It doesn't bring peace. There's no peace apart from the peace that comes from God himself. There is no other peace. All other peace is very temporary, very temporary. The only lasting peace is the one given by God. And eventually, when that peace is taken away, there'll be bloodshed every time. We are in a battle. We are at war all the time, God says, spiritually in our world. It's a constant fight. Are there moments when there's no bombs flying in and you get to kind of relax? Absolutely. But it doesn't take you out of the fight. And he said their feet are swift to shed blood. Can I just, the Bible doesn't say you're not to shed blood. The Bible says you're not to shed innocent blood. And we're not to be quick to shed blood. We should evaluate things and be careful before we have to use force. That's the biblical narrative. But God is not a God that doesn't use force. If that's what you think, then you're missing most of the Bible. And you're missing the end of the story because at the end of the story, God comes back with a lot of force. It's bad for people who don't know him. And that should break our heart, not want us to go beat people into submission. And he looks and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes, for no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Then why are they reading the law? Why obey the law? Why do these things? Here's why. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. In other words, the law is there to help you and me. Nehemiah, when they read the book and they found the law that said the Moabites and the Ammonites shouldn't do this, it's there to get us to respond and admit, I don't know as much as God does. I don't know God's plan as well as I think I do. I need to trust him rather than trust the relationships of what I'm trying to build around me. And so I'm going to do what he wants me to do the way he says to do it. That's what the law of the Bible is designed to do. It's supposed to be a microscope for us to see the problem so that God can then send us his prescription, which is his sacrifice, his death to pay the payment for what we deserve. It goes on, and you have to remember that 
When there's no fear of God before people's eyes, they'll do whatever works. That's kind of where we are today in Christianity. Christianity has taken a path of whatever works, it must be God. And works means whatever gives me comfort, peace, security, makes me happy, then that must be what God wants me to do. Herod, he had a lot of peace, he had a lot of power. John the Baptist ate locusts and honey and wandered around and got his head cut off. When you pursue peace for your terms, you're on dangerous ground. When you pursue peace on God's terms, you're on glorious ground. It's glorious. And he's looking and he writes this. And another person who pursued peace that gets talked about in this book, this end of this chapter, is King Solomon. King Solomon pursued peace. He pursued peace so much that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, the Bible says. 1,000 women. That's stupid. I'm, I'm just being honest. Like, that's just, that's dumb on multiple levels. But the reason he had all those women, it tells us, is because that's how he would make peace treaties. Because he didn't want to be like his dad who shed all that blood. He didn't want to be like King David. He, he wanted to keep the peace. He wanted to keep all the possessions, the riches. He wanted to make everybody happy. And you know who wrote one of the miser most miserable books of all of the Bible? Solomon. Go home and read Ecclesiastes before bed tonight just for some late night encouragement. It's miserable. He's like, everything's meaningless. Nothing matters. And I mean, he's just like, why? Because Solomon did everything to bring himself peace, to keep the peace. And when he came to the end of his life, he realized, what was I doing? Thankfully, he came to realize that and he wrote a book about it for us. But the damage had already been done. So much so that his two sons split the kingdom and then just a couple of hundred years later, both kingdoms go into captivity and slavery where we find them right now. You see, the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The law is good because it helps us see what's true and right, but it can't fix us. We can't like try to work off our sins. It doesn't work. It's too big a payment. You can't get out of debt that much. There's not enough money. That's why God sent his son Jesus to pay the price. In Romans, that's what it goes on to say. It says, but now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Paul says, the Old Testament points to what I'm getting ready to tell you. It's not about laws and the rules. The Old Testament laws and rules were there to point you to your desperate need for Yahweh to save you. By the way, that's what Jesus' name means. It's Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. So Yahweh saves has to say the Old Testament is everybody looking for, for God's salvation. The New Testament is people finding God's salvation. And after the New Testament, it's everybody looking back for God's salvation. And all of human history is still waiting for the ultimate arrival of God's salvation. It's the same story. And so he says, attested by the law and the prophets, that is God's righteousness through faith. It's not by works. It's by faith in Jesus Christ to all believe, who believe. Since there is no distinction, he says, now Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament covenant of the Jewish tradition. Now that that covenant has been fulfilled and the temple is no longer a place, it's the human heart, and where two people are gathered together, where the body of Christ is gathered, that's my new worship center. There's no rebuilding of the temple. Jesus, we looked at this multiple weeks, Jesus is in heaven right now building his temple and he's gonna bring it from heaven to earth and we can't even do anything here to build it on this earth until he comes back. And so here it is and he says, there is no distinction anymore between the Moabite, the Ammonite. There wasn't before if you choose to just be into the family, and that's the same thing we choose to be. He goes on, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you, that means me, that means every person in this room and every person you'll ever meet in your lifetime. 
It says they are justified freely. We can't earn it. Freely by his grace. Grace is something you don't earn. It's a gift given. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God presented Jesus as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. God said, I'm gonna demonstrate how right I am. I am so right that I'm gonna allow my son to die because I have allowed all of you to die. I'm so righteous and so right, I'm gonna put death on my son because I'm not gonna hold you to anything that I don't hold myself to. That's called integrity. And we have the only God that does that in, in the history of man. There is no other God that has that kind of integrity in the history of man. Every other God uses people. Our God said, I don't give you anything I don't take. He goes on and he says, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, when God could have destroyed the people, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's Passover, that's the covering. God presented him to demonstrate, that's Jesus, his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteousness and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, I don't declare myself right because of all the right things I do. I declare myself right because all that God has done and I just want to do what he says to do because I'm so grateful for all he's done. Nehemiah is so frustrated because he's looking around saying, look at what all is God, God has done and your response is horrible. He goes on, he says, for we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. <laughs> the works of the law are not there to get you into the faith. You have faith, you place your faith, and then God gives you the Holy Spirit and the power to do the works that he has for you to do. And we get that so backwards. And Christians are horrible at it because we'll go out to a lost world and tell them to behave without ever sharing with them the power source they need to be able to behave. We put expectations on them. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. And all the while, we're letting Tobiah sleep in our bedroom. He goes on, he looks, and he says, where is God only for Jews? Is he not also for Gentiles? That means people who aren't Jewish. Yes, for Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith. That was the old covenant Decision, when you became a Jew, as a man, you were circumcised, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then cancel the law through faith? In other words, so is all we're reading in Nehemiah and all the Old Testament pointless then? We just throw it out like, well, I'm so glad I have Jesus now. I just, just do whatever I want, and he loves me. Absolutely not, Paul says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, we should be people that know how to take God's Old Testament Take his law and hold it up to show how great God is, how loving he is, and to show other people how wise God is. And if they'll, if they'll submit to God first through faith, then he'll give them the power to understand these other things that are here so that their life will count. That's what he says. See, it hasn't changed. God is been asking people to repent of their sin, to receive grace, and then to respond in obedient worship. That has been the theme throughout all of the Bible, forever. Nehemiah goes on, he says, I also found out that because of the portions for the Levites had not been given, remember they were supposed to bring tithes and offerings so that the priests could be provided for to be able to do their job to make the sacrifices for anyone who wanted to submit and know God. That, that's what their job was. And he said, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. In other words, the people weren't bringing in the tithes and offerings. It only took them three presidential terms for the tax laws to get a hold of them and they're done paying their taxes and we, you know what I mean? I mean, that's what happened. That they're done. Like, oh, it's not worth giving. Who cares? And oh, Tobiah's allowed to live in the temple so it's just corrupt. Like, if I give it to it, it's just gonna go to, like, why am I giving money so Tobiah can have a place? He's not even supposed to be there. All that stuff's going on and Nehemiah sees it all and he says, therefore, I rebuked the officials saying, why has the house of God been neglected? This was my first title of my sermon. Let me ask you, why has the house of God been neglected in your life? By the way, the house of God is your heart. And then God says where two or more are gathered, there's a, there's a house being built. You're a stone that gets put together into a spiritual house of living stones, Peter says. 
he looks and he says, why do you keep neglecting God in your heart? Why do you keep neglecting the body of believers? What is competing for your attention? What peace are you trying to find? What education is so important? What job means so much? Why is it that all this other stuff takes precedent over the local church, over God's people? Story this past, actually two weeks ago, that just brought me to tears. My nephew and my daughter and a bunch of their college friends went to Tennessee. You know, it's amazing to me right now how college students can go wherever because, like, they can just do their classes online. Like, my daughter came home one week. She's like, I'm going to come home for a few days. We're like, don't you have class? No, it's all online. I'll just, you know, go there and log in. And I'm like, okay. So my daughter comes, they go on this vacation to Tennessee for a few days, and there's like 16, I think there were 16 college students that all went together. They carpooled. Christian college students went down, and there was going to be like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday thing, or whatever. Sunday, they go, you know what? We've got to go to church somewhere. So they get on our website with our partnership with Baptist, Southern Baptist, and they look up a church in their area, and they find this real little tiny country church. And they're like, you know, we could try to find some hip, cool church, but what a blessing it would be to maybe some small church for just a bunch of college students to walk in and be like, hey, we're a part of a church plant, and the money that you've given to fund missions actually helped us at our church plant. So they went in, and they decided we're going to go to this church. They didn't call them. They just looked on their website. They show up Sunday morning, are five people at the church. The pastor said, most of our people decided not to come this week for various reasons because of COVID and other things. He said, I didn't think we were going to have anybody this Sunday. And he said, and then you guys walked in the door and it was like, God, I'm sorry that I doubted. They welcomed them with open arms. They said, we'll, we'll bring you to the homes, our homes to eat. It was an amazing moment. Because 16 college students on vacation said, we're going to go worship God together. Not neglect it. Part of the way they learned that was because when we take family vacations, we always look for a church to attend, even if it's over a Sunday. We find a church typically we can go to, not every time, but most of the time. Is there a church we can attend and be a blessing? And is there some place we can go? And after 30 Taking family vacations together with all the cousins, they're on vacation. It's just a natural response to say, Sunday, we should probably gather with some believers. Because it's a normal pattern of their life. And so Nehemiah is looking and he's saying, what has happened that you neglect this? What's happened in your heart that it's just like so easy to dismiss the Lord? Hebrews says this, it says in the New Testament, let us hold... Unto the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Later in 31, it says it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And that's what we get ready to see happen with Nehemiah, because he gathers the Levites and the singers together, and he stationed them at their posts. Then all Judea brought a tenth of the grain, the new wine, the oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hannah, uh, Hanan, son of Zachar, son of Mathaniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. Do you see that? Who are the people that are actually trustworthy? Not who are the popular people who have the most influence. Tobiah has a lot of influence, right? He threw Tobiah, the influencer, out and got these guys in. Who are the trustworthy? Those that, that will do what they're supposed to do, that, that show up. And then he goes on and he says, they were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues, to the other priests, other leaders. In other words, I put these guys in charge because I know they would do what God says because they love the Lord. And then look at what Nehemiah says. He says, remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of my faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Nehemiah considers what he's doing deeds of faithful love. Not, I'm going to get them. 
He's like, I don't know what else to do to love you and love other people than to tell them the truth and to motivate them towards what God wants. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what he says. He goes on to say, at that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wines, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish. I love that he gets kind of specific. Importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. This was against the Old Testament law. You were supposed to prepare so that the Sabbath was clear for you. You were supposed to prepare so you could have a heart of worship on the Sabbath instead of a heart of, I still need to get something today. Because you prepared your week to be ready to give, not receive. That was the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not supposed to be, hey, it's my day to take a nap, everybody leave me alone. That's not Sabbath. Oh, and by the way, the priests are busy on the Sabbath. That's why he goes on and he says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? God told them, the reason I'm going to bring all this disaster is because you won't worship me. You won't rest in me. You won't surrender to me. And now you're in rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath, by profaning your rest in him. When the shadows begin to fall in the gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders to the gate, for the gates to be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. So that would have been sundown on Saturday, on Friday night until sundown on Saturday evening. I posted some of my men at the gates. He posted his own men at the gates. Not any of them, their men, because their men might take bribes from the people coming in. He's like, no, no, no. The guys that came with me, I'm posting them there. The guys I know, they're going to stand post. And then he says, so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, look at this, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping out in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they didn't come again on the Sabbath. Go figure. Nehemiah, who's got all the authority of King Artaxerxes, says, I'm going to use force. And they go, actually, he has the right to do that. We might want to wait till tomorrow. He's not telling them they can't trade. He's not telling them. He's just asking them to wait one day. And in their pride and arrogance, no, I can trade with who I want. I can do what I want when I want. Be careful when we get that kind of heart. And just so you know, Nehemiah probably had to taste wine on the Sabbath day as a slave. He probably didn't get to look at Artaxerxes I and say, hey, Artaxerxes, you know, it's a Sabbath day, so I can't be a slave today. And yet he's holding these people who don't have that authority over them. See, they're not under, they're not in Artaxerxes' temple or palace. They're in Jerusalem where they have the freedom not to be there. She says, you have the freedom to obey, so obey. I don't have the freedom to obey. This is what Jesus said in Luke. He said, and that slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who does not know and did things deserving of blows will be beaten lightly. Much will be required of everyone who has been given much and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. Jesus says, look, if you've been entrusted, they've been entrusted with a city, with walls, with a temple. They've been entrusted and Nehemiah is calling them and saying, you've been entrusted with all this. Step up, give glory to God. Isn't this awesome that you get to have a Sabbath? I don't. I'm going to have to go back and be a slave. But you guys actually can do the Sabbath. He goes on. He says, Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Look at what he says again. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion in keeping with your abundant and faithful love. While Nehemiah is being so hard with the people, he's telling them the truth. In his heart, he's like, Oh, Lord, I don't want to have to do this. I... I have to tell them the truth. I have to be about this. And Lord, I hope that you remember me because I don't deserve to this. I don't deserve to be telling people this. I don't deserve what you, would you please just remember me? He's struggling because he recognizes that he's holding them accountable, but maybe he's struggling because he has to go back and be a slave and he can't do on the Sabbath what they're allowed to do. Maybe he can. Maybe Artaxerxes allows him. Maybe not. You see, here's what Jesus said about the Sabbath. He said, haven't you 
read in the law that the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent. In other words, all the priests are serving. They violate the Sabbath by serving everybody else. And then he says, but I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus at that moment declares, I am the Sabbath. The point of you resting for a day was to pause to remember that there was a salvation coming. Yahweh was going to save you, so you didn't try to save yourself for a day. You prepared yourself for the day, and you said, you know, I hope God saves me today because we can't do certain things. And now Jesus comes and he says, it's not about the Sabbath, it's about me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You rest in me. He goes on and he says this in Nehemiah 13. Also in those days I also, or sorry, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammonon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. Welcome to our world and how many children don't even know their Bible. They've never even read it. Their parents have never read it with them. They speak the language. They know the language. They can, they can talk the talk, but there's nothing there. They don't know. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled their hair out. Pull, pull out their hair. Okay. Nehemiah's pretty serious about this. Like, you, you thought not having your parents show up at your wedding was bad. What if they showed up and started pulling the hair of your groom or bride that you wanted to be married to out. I mean, this is serious. Nehemiah recognizes that, that this is what gets us in trouble. It's relationships. It's, it's, we don't look to God as our primary relationship, but we look to other things, our traditions, who, who, how we grow up, where we came from, the people we like. That's what we look to, and, and, and that kills you. It's not good. And Nehemiah says, I rebuked and cursed them, and then he says, God, remember me for this. I wouldn't want to be remembered for this. I'd be like, God, could you take that out? I mean, I had to do it, but I'd like them not to know about that. Like, Nehemiah is taking seriously and saying, do you understand that if you go down this road, it's going to be devastating? And then look what it says. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Don't do it. Do not do it. Don't, the Bible in the New Testament says, why are you yoked, unequally yoked with unbelievers? Don't do that. Be yoked, be together, working together with believers. Is there forgiveness? Sure. Are there consequences? Yes. He goes on and he says this, did King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Here's where he brings up King Solomon. He says, you know, you all would love to be King Solomon, except the reason we're slaves is because of Solomon. Look, he says, there was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Yet, foreign women drew him into sin. Why then, why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Notice, he's, not, he's attacking the men here, not the women. He's going after the guys. Why are you allowing this? Why aren't you stepping up to honor the Lord? That, he's going after them. Because in this culture, women didn't have rights. And it's the men that are abusing women and using women in their marriages to get more land, to get more money, to get more influence, to get their position. They want to get it. Nehemiah's like, stop it. That is not representing our God. That's not how he does things. They need to know who God is. They need to be ushered into his grace, his compassion, his mercy, and his truth. And you're using them. Don't do it. And that's exactly what happens. That if you're a Christian, an unbeliever, I'm telling you right now, the only reason you're dating that unbeliever, I, can, I guarantee it, the only reason is because you won't trust God. They're, they're in first place. God's in second place. Well, I'm, I'm going to reach them for Jesus. God never asked you to missionary date. That's not a command in scripture. Don't date someone that you don't think is walking with God and will not lead you to him. 
Nehemiah 13 goes on, even one of the sons of Jedidiah, the son of Elishab, the high priest, has become a son-in-law to Sambalot, the Hornite, so I drove him away from me. I mean, Nehemiah's taking this seriously. He's like, get out. And then he says, remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. God, remember them. Now, you read this and say, remember them for defiling. So, is God, so, so, so does, does Nehemiah want to get them? No, Nehemiah wants to show that God's grace is still available. He just said that Solomon was loved and was a great king, but he messed up. It's the same thing here. James says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? He goes on later in that passage and he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. That's what God, Nehemiah was doing exactly what the New Testament says James was calling people to do. It's the same thing. God's trying to draw you, cleanse your hands, cleanse, purify the temple and the gates. Don't be double-minded. Nehemiah goes on to say, so I purified them from everything foreign, and I assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. And then he says it again, remember me, my God, with favor. Nehemiah is having to do all these hard things, and he knows he's not becoming more popular. It's a battle. And all the time he's like, I hope, God, you remember me for this because they want to kill me. Isn't, like, I, I hope you remember that I've been faithful Nehemiah's looking, and he knew he would see God someday, and that was Nehemiah's primary objective. He knew he was a slave. He knew he wasn't going to be probably set free, but he knew that there was freedom in being with his God, that at his death, he could be ushered into the kingdom. That's where freedom really lied. And so Nehemiah is looking at the people, and he's saying, there's a nation perishing. There are Persians perishing. There are people perishing, and we are not representing our God well enough to keep them from perishing. We need to follow him. We need to be an example to others of who our our God is. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is saying, look, we have to make sure of these things, not for our own benefit, because we're still slaves and we deserve all of it, but because there's a world watching. There was somebody else who said something very similar to this. Probably one of the greatest passages in all the New Testament. This is what I'll finish with. Another great leader, probably the greatest leader to ever have existed on the face of the planet. His name is Jesus. And this is what Jesus said, similar to Nehemiah. When the disciples saw him, this is after he died and he was resurrected, and the disciples are seeing him again alive, they worshiped, but some doubted. I'm sure in Nehemiah's day, he got people to worship. There were people who worshiped, but I'm sure there were also some that were like, oh, I don't know about this Nehemiah. I don't know about that. I don't know. Then Jesus came. Didn't he just drawing near? To God earlier? James said that. See, everybody thinks God's far away. I want to keep God far away. I don't want too close because he's holy and he's awesome. And Nehemiah's like, no, do the things that allow you to draw near to God. That's what you want to do. Cleanse the temple so we can draw near. Cleanse your heart so you can draw near. Man, it's awesome. You want to be near him. You want to be with him. That's exactly what Jesus says. And Jesus didn't just say, you come near to me. Jesus said, I'm coming near to you. And then he says, look at this. All authority has been given to me. Just like Nehemiah had been given all authority by the Persian Empire and everybody in Jerusalem had to li listen to him. Jesus was given all authority and he says, in heaven and on earth, go therefore, go. It's not about staying in Jerusalem anymore and trying to preserve the temple. That's done. It's been completed. Jesus died. Now he's given us the Holy Spirit and he says, go together. Go out together. Go to one another. It's about going into the world to make me known. And then he says, and make disciples of all nations. That's disciplined people. That means you have to discipline people. To be a disciple, the word is discipline. <laughs> so we're to be discipled people, disciplined people. Teach them how to be disciplined to the relationship that they have. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what Jesus did. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, baptize them so that everybody knows they're in the family. They're a part. That's circumcision in the New Testament like circumcision in the Old Testament. Baptize them. And then he says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Who wrote all the commands of the Old Testament? Who wrote all the commands of the Old Testament? 
Jesus. He's called the Word of God. The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. The words of the Old Testament were given to us by Jesus. So when he says, observe everything I've commanded you, everything. Observe it. Observe it doesn't mean do it all. It means observe, look, inspect, look at how it works, look at how it knows, like all of that. And then he goes on and he says, and remember. That's what Nehemiah is struggling with. Will God remember me? And Jesus looks at you, he looks at me, he looks at his disciples, and he says, I will remember you. It's okay. It's what Nehemiah is like, will he remember, will he remember? And Jesus is like, I will remember. If you know me, I am with you. I'm not leaving you. I will not forsake you. I'm with you, he says. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That means to the end of time, to the end of this age we're in, of bringing the world to Christ. And when that age ends, there's going to be a new age that's ushered on the earth, one of perfection where we'll all have new bodies, a new way to worship. It'll all be beautiful with a new temple and a new Jerusalem city is what Revelation says. And Jesus looks and he says, I know some of you might be doubting. I know some of you might be excited, but I'm telling you what you're going to do is you're going to go out and your job is to help make disciples Your job is to baptize people into the family, to say this is a family member and it's beautiful. Your job is to teach others to observe God's word, which is what we do here. We walk through the word of God. We help you observe it so you can see who God is. You can see who man is. You can see who you are. And then you can look at God and say, what do you want me to do now that I see who you are? I see who man is and I see who I am. And then lastly, remember that he's with you. Let me ask you, is he with you? Are you looking at God and saying, God, I hope you remember me? Or are you looking to heaven and looking at Jesus, Yahweh who saves, and says, you have promised that you'll remember me? That's a different statement. And I pray that this morning, if you've not made that decision to cross that line with Jesus, you do it today. And you'd cross the line and you say, God, I, I want to know that you took my place. You died for me. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, you took my sin upon yourself and you cleansed me and purified me so that I can stand before you, not because of what I've done or what I'm gonna do, but because of what you've done. And I place my faith in that, like Paul said in Romans, I place my faith and I recognize that if I do that, you promise that you will remember me and you will help me and you will give me a body, a family to help me remember and to walk with you, to be disciplined, to be baptized and to teach others to do the same thing if you haven't made that decision I'm telling you it's worth it it's worth it it's worth it because God wants to remember you and he doesn't want you to doubt and if you're a Christian and you're doubting and you're struggling and you remember the sins that you've committed and the mess that you've done and you're in the midst of those consequences can I just tell you Jesus says remember that I'm still with you I was still with Solomon after 700 wives and 300 concubines. I never left him. There were consequences. He was bad. He ended up writing Ecclesiastes. Life, but you know, with him, I didn't quit. God will not quit on you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And as we finish up this book of the trouble and disgrace that we see in our own lives and in the world, Father, this last message is just hard. There's just so much there. But I am so grateful that you, like Nehemiah, you gave Nehemiah the spirit that reflects who you are, just like you give us your spirit so we reflect who you are. I am thankful that you are the God who saves, Yahweh who saves. I'm thankful that in the Old Testament, they longed for a Messiah to come, someone to save them. And they gave their lives for that hope that you would save them, that you would remember, that you would come. And they placed all of their hope in you. And I thank you that in the day that you were on the earth, that you asked people to place their hope in you, and there were those who did. And then after you left, you've called us to be people who call the world to place their hope in you. Father, I thank you for the reality of what we get to do, that we get to be your disciples. We get to be baptized into a family. We we get to be taught by you. We get to help one another observe your ways. These are all privileges that we get. 
We get to be remembered by you. So Father, this morning, if anybody here has not crossed that line with you, I pray that today would be the day. They say, you know, I've been doing my whole life trying to do things so that maybe God might remember me. Maybe I'll get to heaven and I'll have a 75% chance of getting in because of all the good I do. I pray that they'd see that that is just a lie. That there's no way they can get in without you doing the work, without you forgiving and carrying out the justice they deserve. And that's such an act of love, the cross. And so I pray they would invite you in. And for those of us who are believers, I pray today as we sing this last song, as we get ready to leave and go fellowship with one another, I pray that you would remind us and that we would remember that you are with us always, even to the end of this age. And we praise you for it. Amen.